Well, um, although unintentionally, at least I want to think that, i got to be honest, I largely ignored the first four chapters of Galatians um, for many years. Again, I don't think it was intentional, but I did it. I think there are a few reasons why I ignored these chapters, um, and I'm sure that they all come down to misunderstanding what was the aim of them. Um, And there's lots of different reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is that I thought that the thrust, the main thrust of Galatians and the main thrust of these first four chapters was aimed at Paul convincing the Galatians that their initial faith comes from faith and not from works. That is that their initial faith comes from faith alone and not from works. And obviously Paul does believe that. And obviously Paul contends for that, but that's actually not the main thrust of the argument of the first four chapters of Galatians. And that's actually not even the main thrust of the argument of Galatians because the Galatians themselves believed that their initial faith came or their initial conversion came from faith. And we know that because in Galatians 3, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit... So how do they begin? By the Spirit. And they agree with that. He knows they agree with that. That's why he's using that as an argument, as a premise. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, you're now being perfected by the flesh? And so his main thrust of the argument is that the life of the believer is not lived out in flesh-accomplishing works but spirit-depending faith upon the life and death of Jesus. And that is the argument I didn't realize how desperately I needed and fundamentally a truth that I did not understand. The Galatians had listened to the false teaching of the Judaizers. That is, these who had come in after Paul and had begun to tell them they needed to add to their faith certain rituals that came from the Mosaic Law. And remember, the Galatians were Gentile pagans. They did not follow the law before this. And so they came from paganism to faith in Christ. And then the Judaizers came in and said, Oh, well, if you all want to believe in Yahweh then this is what you need to add to it. In the previous chapter two weeks ago, which is really very tightly connected to this chapter, in fact, I really don't know why there's a chapter break where it is at the beginning of chapter 4, but I didn't make that decision. And by the way, neither did God. That's not an inspired decision. That happened many hundreds of years after the, the text was given over to us. There is a chapter of vision. I don't know why, because what Paul is arguing there, remember what we looked at, is he says the whole thrust of the law, the whole intent of the law, is to drive us to Christ. Even if it has to hold us as prisoners, the law, in our sin, long enough so that when Christ shows up, we realize we are in bondage and we need a Savior and we trust Christ. That's what Paul has argued. And so now he's going to pick right back up there and we are going to march through. Here's our outline, big picture. We're going to spend about two thirds of the time just going right through this from verse one all the way through verse 31. And then we're going to spend the last third trying to digest it, summarize it and apply it. Okay, so uh, get ready. We're going to go in, but we'll come out. Um, So overall principle, if you like an overall principle up front. Self-reliance is a dangerous weapon of the enemy aimed at believers in order to belittle the name of Jesus. Self-reliance. It's a dangerous weapon of the enemy aimed at believers in order to belittle the name of Jesus. Verse 1. I mean, so you can tell he's connecting this because he's actually going to use this. What he's saying after this is a picture of everything else he's already taught us. And again, just one more time. What did he teach us? He taught us all of the law was aimed at holding us, even if it meant imprisoning us, to a point that we would be ready for Jesus as a Savior. We'd see our need for Jesus. So keep that. All right. I mean that the air. 
As long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, because he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So Paul is using an analogy, and it's a beautiful analogy. It's really cool. He says there's a child who has an inheritance coming, but that inheritance doesn't kick in until a certain age. And so he argues that until that age, that child, though he's got an inheritance coming, his life doesn't look much different than a servant. Because inheritance does him no good until the date comes. That's all he's after right now. Okay, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, that is, before coming unto Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The exact same way, we, we were children who have an inheritance coming. That's the analogy he's making. We're living in slavery. It's doing us no good yet because the time hasn't come. And what are we enslaved to? He's going to tell us two things. One, we're enslaved to the desires of the flesh. We're also enslaved to things inside of all this like false religion. But he's also already argued that the other thing we're enslaved to, remember this in chapter 3, is the law of God itself. And that actually is a gift of God to hold us in slavery to the law of God until it's time for Christ to appear. Some of the slavery was a gift of God. That is holding us to the law. Some of it, and you're going to see this, was actually brought on by Satan himself. There's a slavery that's happening that Satan's behind, such as a slavery to pagan religion, such as a slavery to the desires of the flesh, that is to worship the Creator as if, I mean the, cre- the creature as if He's the Creator. Alright, verse 4. So remember again, we're, we're these children who got an inheritance coming, not doing us any good because we're in slavery. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, that means under the flesh, Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as the sons of God. Church, Merry Christmas. (laughs) I mean, seriously, you would be hard pressed to find one verse that better summarizes what Christmas is all about than this verse. And here's the best part. I didn't plan it. I didn't plan it. I just said, let's march to the book of Galatians. Let's start with book one or chapter one, verse one. And here we are. That's a whole nother sermon in itself. That's pretty awesome. Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, that is, we've come of age for the inheritance. God sent Jesus and he's so particular about what he tells us here. He tells us that he comes born under a woman. That is so he can endure all the things of the flesh so that the enemy can try to hold him in the same bondage as us and Jesus can overcome it. But he also tells us he's born under the other thing that we're enslaved to. And what's that? The law. So that he can live out the law perfectly and set us free from that. So he does all of this. And in verse 5, he says, two, that is in order so that he can redeem those who are under the law. So that we might, be, we might receive adoption as sons. The father sends his only begotten son. Who comes and says, I want to adopt For the father, a bunch of other sons. And I'll do it at the cost of my own life. And so, Paul is saying that when we embrace Christ, we embrace the freedom that he brings. In verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, Paul goes on to tell us here. That he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Who is this? Who is the spirit of his son? It's the Holy Spirit. Now I think this is a really fitting description of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit. One of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is to make much of Jesus. Might to make much of Jesus. 
And realize it's the exact opposite of what demonic spirits do. What do demonic spirits do? They seek to belittle Jesus. So he says he sends into your hearts the spirit of the son, his Holy Spirit, crying out, Abba, Father. It's a Trinitarian work. It's unbelievable here. He says, the Father sends the Spirit into your hearts. The Spirit makes much of the Son by reminding us of our sonship, reminding us that God is our Father forever. So what the Spirit does consistently is says, I have your birth certificate. And He's consistently reminding us, I've got the adoption papers right here. I know who you are. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit throughout our lives. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave. You can read the papers. But you're a son. And if a son, logic would follow, then an heir through God. Don't live like slaves, but sons. And not just any son, but like an heir who has a share in the eternal kingdom. That's the argument. Verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, he's going to go back and make sure they get the application here. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. You used to be enslaved before the fullness of time come, came, before your inheritance date hit. You used to be enslaved. We know that they were enslaved by the law, and now he's telling them it's even worse than that. They were enslaved by demons. To the desires of their flesh, to pagan religions, to desire for things that were not God. And where do I get that? Because in verse 8, he says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And I'm convinced that that is demons. It's exactly what he's after. And if, if you want further um, talk on that, I, I had a huge section that I thought I would do with this and then I realized I'd have no way I'd make that time I would say look at 1 Corinthians 10 read that if you don't see the connection there um, please I'd love to talk to you as to why that is we were enslaved to the law and that was a gift from God we were also enslaved by Satan to our flesh and to pagan religions verse 9 but now that you've come to know God or, or rather to be known by God. <laughs> this is another jewel. It's a shining diamond. Listen to how Paul describes their conversion. Now that you've come to know God. Or, or better said. Have been known by God. Now I got to tell you. One of the questions I have when I'm looking at this. Is why did he include the first part? That is if he's going to correct himself. If you're writing something. There's many times as I'm writing a sermon that. I'm writing and then I'm backspacing. That ain't going to do it. Nope, that ain't going to do it, right? Well, Paul, why didn't you just backspace? Why, why did you include, he says, when you did not know God, I'm sorry, verse 9, now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Well, why not just say, rather to be known by God? Because he wants us to see the correction that he made. He puts it in there for a purpose. And why do you know he put it in there for a purpose? Because it's there. <laughs> so he puts it in there for a purpose. Why? I'm telling you. I think this is at the very heart of it. There's a huge difference. There's an active and a passive difference. Active. You came to know God. That is, you're the subject. God is the object. And you are the one going towards it. It's an active verb. Right? Now let's go to the passive. No, no, no. Rather, you came to be known by God. That's passive. God is the one who sought you out. And Paul is trying to make sure they understand. There is a huge distinction. The Galatians did not come to know God. God came to know the Galatians. Big difference. We're going to see how that turns out. Verse 9, continue. How can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Like trusting in the law. Whose slaves you want to be once more? 
You observe days and months and seasons and years. You you used to be enslaved to these. But by God's abundant grace, you came out of that. And now you want this slavery again. Now, if you're following the argument, it gets a little bit hairy here. Because Paul has said that they used to be enslaved to the law, which was God's doing. And they used to be enslaved by demons to other things, all until God set them free from both. Now, stay with me. Now he says that they are becoming slaves again to the law. But now, wait a second. Who used to enslave them to the law? God. But God's the one that set them free. Then who is it now who's enslaving them to the law? This is crazy. Paul is positing that it is actually demons who are using the law to enslave the people of God. It's exactly what he's after. It's astonishing. He's saying that it's actually the demons. It can't be God that's enslaving them. He's not enslaving them because he's the very one to set them free. That wouldn't make any sense to set them free, especially when it costs Jesus Christ, and then go back and enslave them. So if there's anybody enslaving them, it's got to be the only other one he's mentioned here, and that's the demons. Well, then why would the demons care about the law of God? Keep that question. Just keep the question. I'm telling you, we're going to come up in a little bit. Let's recap for a second. A couple of points. Believers, point one, believers are sons not slaves. We get that from verse 7. There is no need for self-reliance. We get that at the beginning of verse 9. Because he says, you did not come to be to know God, but you came to be known by God. So if your self-reliance helped you none in coming in Christ, why is it going to help you now to stay in Christ, right? Third, Satan desires to enslave believers to the law. We get that from the second half of verse 9. We're going to end up with five points that we're going to try to synthesize. Verse 11. Aren't you glad it didn't ice over? I mean, really? All right, here we go. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Now, Paul turns to a very personal appeal. He loves these folks. And more than that, he loves to see the gospel spread. And he is seeing the gospel assaulted. And you're going to hear very personal language. He says, I'm afraid that all my labor was of naught. Verse 12. Listen how he starts it. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, remember, Paul used to be, before his conversion, he called himself not just a Jew, but you remember how he describes himself. Autobiographically, he says what? I was Jew of Jews, right? So before his conversion, Paul put all his trust in the law. And Paul is saying that before the Gentiles were converted, these Galatians were converted, they put no trust in the law. They didn't care about it. They weren't Jews. Catch that? So before... Paul's conversion, no trust in the law. Before the Gentiles, con- uh, sorry, before Paul's conversion, all trust in the law. Before the Gentiles' conversion, no trust in the law. And now he says, I invite you to become as I am. How is he now? I have no trust in the law. How do we know that? Because now listen to how he describes. For I became as you are. That is, I used to be one who trusted all in the law, and I became like you are, put no trust in the law. Why are you trying to become like I used to be? That doesn't make any sense. So he's after, and he says, brothers. Verse 12. Uh, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Paul, we think... We know he didn't intend to stay in Galatia as long as he did. We think he might not ever intended to go. But he got sick as he was crossing over from Cyprus on the first missionary journey. He got sick and he ends up in Galatia. 
And he ends up there a long time. That's what he's after here. And he's saying, I was really sick. And however sick he was, he must have not looked very good. He's saying, you, you, you're willing to go through that with him. Everybody else wrote me off that you were kind enough here. That's what he's after. By the way, I have found help in that. This is parenthetical, but the Galatians were an accident. According to Paul's plan. That is... This letter should have never existed if Paul would have done things the way Paul planned it. Man, I tell you, I find a lot of help in that. When we spend all our time trying to plot out exactly what we're going to do and how it's going to work, isn't it real helpful to know that the book of Galatians was never planned, but God said, I'll let it happen. That's parenthetical. You won't get charged any extra. He says, you know, it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. I didn't intend to stay that long. Might not even intend to come. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn me or despise me. How did they treat him? You treated me as an angel. Now remember, we think angel here. We start flocking our wings and getting our bright, right? But the word angel just means messenger. You treated me as a messenger of God. As Christ Jesus. Wow. That's how you treated me. What then has become of your charity or your blessedness, your care? I testify to you that if it were possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given a hearing to me. That is, I came to you and you begged me to preach. You didn't care that I sounded horrible, that I looked horrible, that you might get what I have. You were begging me, please tell us more. And now all of a sudden, you don't want to hear what I have to say. You can tell it, it pains him. He says in 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? He's right after what is really at the heart. Right here. I'm telling you, it's coming. Why is it that the Galatians who would have gouged out their eyes to hear Paul before are now not wanting to hear what he has to say? What's it? What? Would drive you to that. Verse 17. You could underline this one. They make much of you. Why? They make much of you. Why is it that the Galatians have been willing to trade everything? Because they like to be made much of. That is, they are trying to give you a law to follow so that you might follow it and start to now feel good about yourself. You used to be pagans. You had no doings with Yahweh. And now all of a sudden you're saying Yahweh is your treasure in life because of Christ Jesus And they're saying, oh, now, if you want to talk about Yahweh, you need to do this and this. And you don't like the fact that your only answer back is, no, 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 Christ Jesus is our only claim. And so what you want to now do is follow their law so that they'll think something of you so that you can be made a much of. That's at the heart of it. And Paul's saying it's for no good purpose. They are giving you a whittled down law, a man-made law made to make much of man. And it's of no good purpose because it isn't even the law of God. And he's saying, verse 18, he said, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, he's saying, look, I'd be happy to make much of you. If it was something good, but this isn't good. It's a horrible purpose. Your vanity is a horrible purpose. You can hear just the anguish continue. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. By the way, I think you have to be writing as a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to ever use the analogy of this feels to me like childbirth. I think that's the only way that's ever allowed. Um, Paul gets away with it because of that. He's saying this hurts. This desperately hurts. Verse 20. I wish 
I could be present with you and I could take on a different tone. For I'm perplexed about you. In other words, I just want to come and I want to find out it's very different. So I can talk about things with you very differently. Because right now, I don't get it. It's foolishness to me. And how does he know when they're going to be matured? It was in the middle of verse 19. When Christ is formed in you. It's another just beautiful nugget. When there is little of you left, and there is much of Christ, then you are on your way. But as long as there is a lot of you, there will be little of Christ. Recap. What we've added now is, I think the most important thing we've added, is that the motivation of their self-reliance is self-exaltation. And that's in verse 17. So number four. The motivation of self-reliance. Is self-exaltation. I think I got us off. Sorry guys. Can you move that forward? I, it's my fault. I skipped in my notes. Yeah. Thank you. My fault. Um, the motivation of self-reliance. Is self-exaltation. Stay with me. With two-thirds of the, of the two-thirds. Some of you are actually trying to calculate that. That's cool. That's cool. You need a TI-82 for that. I'm showing my uh, age. Actually, your iPhone will do just fine. All right. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? (laughs) Oh, buddy. This gets cool quick. Paul is turning it on him like you can't turn it on him. He's getting ready to say, oh, now this is a whole separate argument. I mean, I'm telling you, he just turned the corner like, you can tell. It's, It's like a fit that a parent goes through. When they've asked their child to do something and their child gives them a response that they can't even imagine that that's a human response, right? Clean your room. I don't want to clean my room. I don't want to pick up my clothes. Well, back up the truck. Pretty sure I get, you know, you've been through that, right? And then in the middle of it, before you know it, you're explaining to them how much the mortgage costs and how much their clothes cost and they can get their own job. That's exactly where Paul is right now. He's in the middle of, it's as if it occurred to Paul, you want to play the law game? I'll bring you the law game. And this is Paul's response of, I will bring you the law game. Let's play law together. And Paul, this is unbelievable. Paul is good. This is what he's after. I'm telling you, this is his whole point. If you want to follow the law, then you're going to find out the law says that they are out and the gospel is in. And that's because I'm reading from only one thing to get it. Oh, let's say the law. It's awesome. Awesome. All right, watch this. He is saying God has always, always intended to bring salvation through Jesus and never intended it to come from the law. Keep that in mind. Let me give us a quick, quick history. Paul's going to take us back to the first dealings of Abraham. Tell him, this is what's so hard with Paul. This is to Paul like a, hmm, I got one for you. And we, it's so tough to even grasp what he's after. His point is, he's going to take us back to Abraham and show us that from the beginning, there has been two ways to be a son of God. There's always been two ways. You can be a son of slavery or a son of freedom. And there is one difference between a son of slavery and a son of freedom. The son of freedom is elected by God, promised by God. That's it. It's the only difference. He's going to take us back to show us that. So recall, in Genesis 15, God made a promise to Abraham that he would give him an heir. You remember that, right? Now, Abraham's about 100 years old, and his wife Sarah is a decade younger, um, and she's never been able to have children. Neither Abraham uh, nor Sarah specializes in obstetrics, but both are wise enough to realize that Sarah will probably not be needing maternity clothes anytime soon. So, as told in Genesis 16, Sarah gives Abraham her slave Hagar as a wife. And Hagar bears Abraham a son, Ishmael. Remember this. So it seems, as you're walking through the text in Genesis 16, that, that Ishmael must be the promised son. Not so. Genesis 17 and 18 is the story of God telling Abraham and Sarah that Ishmael is a child conceived by self-reliance. 
and is not the promised child. Instead, God, says in Genesis 17, will give a promised child to Sarah. And Sarah and Abraham respond by laughing at God. And somewhere between Genesis 18 and Genesis 21, Sarah is going to Hagar and saying, can I borrow some eternity clothes? Because in Genesis 21, Sarah gave birth to a baby boy named Isaac. And the Hebrew there is unbelievable because it means something on the lines of who's laughing now. That's awesome. All of this is a key. Okay. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. We already covered those two, Ishmael and Isaac. One by a slave woman. Remember, Hagar was Sarah's slave. And one by a free woman. That would be Sarah. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, hold on. Just remember that to interpret something as an allegory, if you're going back to your literature classes, you remember that it's when you look at one story and you see a bigger story within it. So when this happened, this meant such and such. When this happened, this meant such and such. It's usually... Honestly, a dangerous way to interpret scripture. But it's Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So like he can say that it hurts like giving birth, he can interpret it allegorically. And so he says, let me tell you what was really going on behind all that. Oh, this is awesome. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Now you remember that, right? That is where the law was given, right? So that's the Mosaic. These women are two covenants, one's from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds uh, to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Okay. Each woman represents a covenant. Hagar represents the covenant is given under the law of Moses. Those born under that law are slaves. That's exactly what he covered in chapter 3. That's God's doing, right? Paul goes on to explain that the Jews who refused to put full trust in Jesus now correspond to living under the life of Hagar. It's unbelievable that Paul is even positing this. But he's not just positing it. He's saying it. And it's not just Paul. It's the Holy Spirit himself interpreting the Old Testament. It's beautiful. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. Paul's talking about Sarah. He's now going to quote from Isaiah 55. This is a beautiful prophecy where the prophet's given hope to them after the exile. And he tells of a day, listen to what this whole point is. He tells of a day that God will welcome illegitimate children. God will welcome illegitimate children, namely Gentiles. Verse 27, this is right out of Isaiah 54. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Couldn't bear before, right? Break forth with crying and aloud. In other words, get excited. Why? Because you're in labor. That seems a little bit odd to me, but I get what he's after. Right? You're getting ready to have kids and you never were going to. So here, he's talking to the Israelites. He calls them bare and fruitless. Now he says, For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The children of the illegitimate one will be more than the children of the legitimate one. Unbelievable. God says, I'm going to have more illegitimate children than legitimate children. That's what Isaiah 54 says. And Paul's quoting it. Let me put that. In other words, there is going to be more Gentiles than even the Jews, Paul said. And how do I know this? Because he wrote it in Isaiah. And this is crazy. You've got Paul, the Jew of Jews, admitting this. Verse 28. Now you brothers. He's talking. Now he calls them brothers. So he's saying, I'm connected to you. He's a Jew. They're Gentiles. Are like Isaac. You are children of promise. Folks, son of Gentiles are the promised ones. 
Paul affirms in his brothers and says they are actually the sons of promise. You are illegitimate and are actually the legitimate ones. The irony is unreal. The Galatians are rejecting Paul who affirms their legitimacy in order to follow the Judaizers who are telling them to earn their legitimacy. And Paul tells the Galatians, you need to tell them to go away. <laughs> he uses the law to do it. Verse 29. But just as the time, just at the just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is also now. If you remember in Genesis, there comes a point when Ishmael ridicules Isaac and Hagar says, Get him out. Right? And they send they send Hagar and Ishmael packing. He says, exact same thing's happening here. He says, but what does the Spirit say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. This is straight out of Genesis. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Just like Ishmael ridiculed Isaac, so now the Judaizers are ridiculing you. Just like the son born according to self-reliance was ridiculing the, born, the son born of promise. So now those who live under self-reliance are ridiculing you because you are living under gospel. And I say, do what Sarah said and get them out. Verse 31. So brothers, he sums it all up. We are not children of the slave, but of the free. You got two ways you can use the law. You can take the Ishmael route and trust in flesh and self-reliance. Or you can take the Isaac route and daily see your inability and helplessness and trust fully in God. Two options. Recap. Four, we added the motivation of self-reliance and self-exaltation. Five, those who are sons of promise must not live like slaves. Those who are sons of promise must not live like slaves. Okay. Quickly going to try to put all this together. How does all this fit together? I think the main themes here are the following. Slavery and self-reliance get to the major problem of the Galatians. They wanted to rely on themselves. And Paul says it's worse than that. This is being motivated by demons. That is, this is Satan himself at work. And I take that to mean that heightens the seriousness of this a lot. So if we as a church want to look at this and go, this seems like a bunch of weird stuff. It seems way out there. This is what I did for a long time with Galatians first four chapters. I don't think this really pertains to me. The fact that Paul spends this much time and effort and then he has the audacity to say, this is Satan himself. That makes me say, this is something I probably ought to pay attention to. So I'm going to try to tie this together with an analogy. I know you're shocked, me and an analogy. But imagine, if you will, that there's a huge plantation. I mean, enormous. You got it in your mind? There's a big plantation. It's like bigger than Texas. Stovalls are like, that's blasphemy. That's uh, all right. Repent later. Say that the, the owner of it is 10 million times wealthier than any other man alive. So to say he's the wealthiest man alive is like to put it very mildly. He only has one child, his son. And working on the plantation are scores of servants. You can picture this, right? And each of these is bound to the plantation because of a massive debt that they or their family owes to the owner. You got this, right? Huge plantation. There's a father and his only son living in a house. And then there's all of these servants and they're all tied to the location. And at some point, the oldest son chooses some of the servants and takes his own inheritance. This is the son. He's got a massive inheritance. He takes it and he does a couple of things with it. One, he buys their freedom for these chosen servants. He goes and he purchases their freedom. I'll pay back the debt that you owe to my father. Two, he helps the father to legally adopt them so that they can now be sons of the father. You got that? Third, he gives each of them a portion of his inheritance that he has left over. You got that? So if you were one of these servants, you've now gone from a servant 
to free. (laughs) You've now gone from a nobody to now you are a rightful heir to the wealthiest man alive. And you went from beyond broke to very, very rich. All because this oldest son gave some, namely his inheritance. So if you're one of those servants, how might you respond? Well, I want to use the scriptures here to help us with a couple of options. I want to use the story of the prodigal son. You remember that in Luke 15. There's a man, he has two sons who each has a decent inheritance coming, right? The youngest son asks for his inheritance. He cashes it in and he heads out. And he lives in a horrible way. And because of after sinning and wasting the money, he finds himself living with the pigs, right? You remember what he finally says, this is craziness. My father's servants live better better than this. And he gets a plan, right? What's his plan? I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask only one thing. Not, hey, can you give it all back, right? He's going to say, I just want to go back and say, can I be like one of the servants here? That's all I want, right? And the father who sees him coming while he's a ways off, he runs and embraces him. He doesn't just run and embrace him. He doesn't let the guy be, finish his sentence. He throws a robe on him. He, he, he has him kill the fattest calf. And then they have a huge party for him. That was the younger son. But there's another character in the story. It's the oldest son, right? The oldest son never left. And now he's bitter and angry at the treatment of the younger son. And he responds, I don't get it. I never left. I served you and did as you said for all these years and you never threw me a party. Do you remember that part? So you got two options. You've got the younger son option or you got the older son option. So let's say you're one of those servants who used to be a servant, but now you're an adopted son. You now just find out that everything for you has changed. The way it was yesterday and the way it is today is unbelievably different. What might you do? Well, you have the option of taking the youngest son route. That is, you can say, thanks for the freedom. I will always appreciate it. But I'm going to find a life somewhere else. Folks, there are thousands who have claimed the name of Christ and done just that. They pray a prayer. They walk an aisle. They accept his gracious gift only to quickly leave the father's house and find happiness elsewhere. And there is much more that needs to be said about that. But that's actually not the aim of this text. This text is aimed at the oldest son option. The other alternative is to take the oldest son option. It's the danger that Paul focuses on because it's the danger of the Galatians. So you're an adopted son. Everything for you is now changed. You decide not to leave the plantation. You're going to stick around, right? You go ahead and move your stuff up from the servant quarters now to the father's house. What a move that's got to be. You appreciate the oldest son's gift, but you begin to despise the look of the servants who have not been adopted. You want to find a level of legitimacy. As if to say... You know, I could not have gotten this point without the gift of the oldest son. But I've earned my keep ever since. Thank you. That is the dangerous attitude of the older son of Luke 15. That's the attitude of the Galatians. And that's the danger that we must guard against. Because that is where Satan is pressing. We each face the temptation to seek our own legitimacy. And in turn, our own glory. And it's a dangerous dangerous temptation for two extremely important reasons. First, because each of us at best are recovering self-aholics. Like it or not, you got to swallow this. You are or have been addicted to yourself. And if you haven't sat in a room at some point, I would suggest doing it. Out loud saying, I am a self-aholic. I'm addicted to myself. I love myself. I want to see me get praise and adoration. I want to see me succeed. And I want things to revolve around me. 
And if Christ has done an amazing work, and it takes a lot of work, and only Christ can pull it off, you might be able to say, I'm recovering self-olic. That's reason number one is dangerous. But the reason number two is because Satan knows it. And he is armed and ready to use it against us. Let me explain why I think that by returning the analogy. And I'm hoping to answer way back in chapter 9. I posited a question. I mean, verse 9. I posited a question. Of how in the world is it. That Paul could ever say that Satan was using the law. I'm hoping to answer that. So back to our analogy. You got the adopted sons. You got the oldest son. We know what the oldest son has done for the adopted son. Let's say there's a person. Let's call him Satan. He has an extreme hatred for the oldest son. He knows he can't kill him and he knows he can't touch him. So how does he get at him through these adopted sons? Well, he is smart enough to know he can't directly attack the oldest son. It's not going to work. They won't allow it. They know what the oldest son has done for him. They know the oldest son changed everything for him. You can't attack his name directly. They won't. You don't stand a chance. But what you can do is you can begin whispering in their ear something like this. You know, you do have something to offer. You do matter. If you just do this or that, people will realize it. I mean, yeah, you could not have gotten here on your own, but at least you can show that you've earned your keep since then. It's a beautiful move. Now the oldest son goes from being the center of attention to a mere parenthetical note. Imagine the difference in testimonies at an honorary ceremony on the plantation. Yes, adopted son 4,823. What do you have to say? Well, I could, of course, well, I would like, of course, to thank the oldest son, without whom none of this would be possible. I'd like to say that I'm proud of the work I did. We did on the 1991 South Lawn Project. And I'd like to say that I'm proud of the work that we did. I mean, we did on the dig, the ditch dig project. That was tough and we pulled it out. Satan's loving it. Where's the oldest son in that? He's somewhere way back there. He loves it. Now imagine this testimony. Adopted son, 2,212,413. What do you want to say? Who, me? Um, um, I, I don't have much to say except... Thank you, oldest son. Thank you, oldest son. Thank you, oldest son. That kills Satan. He is driven banty by. He's eating his shorts by. Satan hates to see the name of Jesus cherished. He hates it more than anything. And we think he hates kingdom work getting done. But I'm telling you, he really doesn't care about that. Let me tell you why. He knows he can't stop that. God, he knows that God doesn't need any one of us to get anything done. He was there when God said a couple of words and everything, including us, came into existence. He knows he can't stop the work of God. He's not trying to stop the work of God. But I'm going to tell you what he wants to do. He wants to minimize the name of Jesus while it gets done. And he knows the best way to do that is pray on our desire to be made much of. So he entices us with self-reliance so that we might be fooled into thinking that there's a legitimate place for our demand for self-exaltation. And he does it all to attack the name of Jesus. And this is exactly how the Galatians were being attacked. He hated the fact that they came to cherish Christ. So he made a valiant effort to make them want to make much of themselves by relying on themselves in all in order to make Jesus small. When we as the people of God refuse to give in to the temptation to make our name a name for ourselves within the kingdom, 
and instead do everything we can to make Christ look glorious, we honor our Savior. Conversely, when we give in to the temptation for self-exaltation via self-reliance, we dishonor the sacrifice. That is the worst consequence. But folks, there's others. It confuses lost people to no end. They begin to think Christianity is nothing more than keeping yourself clean and having a good family. They don't see Christ as valuable or necessary for that. I'm telling you, lost people don't see the need for Christ in that at all. What does the cross have to do with that? But remember those younger brothers? Older brothers seeking to make much of themselves has devastating consequences on younger brothers. And it's real easy to see. Imagine you're straight, you've strayed from Christ and you actually feel a genuine desire to return. You decide to go to church and imagine that it's, you walk in a church full of older brothers. They're all seeking to do everything perfect so, perfect so people will make much of them. They feel good about their accomplishments and their progress. Would it be very easy for you to hear about the sacrifice of Jesus and how important he is to their daily lives? there no you're going to think I just got to get myself cleaned up so I can fit in now imagine you walk into a church of a bunch of folks who've never gotten over the gift Christ gave them they've never gotten over the fact that they were enemies and by the blood of the cross there is now peace and they are seeking to follow him in holiness and Christian love out of genuine love for Christ they often admit their mistakes. They are honest about the fact that they still struggle with sin. And they talk about their daily need for Christ. On, over and over you hear them say, I desperately need Jesus to save me. I bet you're going to feel like that's a place. Maybe I could make it there. Right? Well, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's full of a bunch of people who are going, I cannot believe the oldest son did this. It makes no sense. The rightful response of a follower of Christ is thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 